It's the summer solstice, the longest day of the year. All that daylight makes us joyful. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Courtney Astolfi. And Lisa's up first. Lisa, it sounds like the Ohio House will go to the mat over all the -the over-the-top things the Ohio Senate loaded into or removed from the proposed budget. What's at issue here? Well, the reconciliation between the House and Senate versions is ongoing, and House Speaker Jason Stevens says they actually may miss the June 30th deadline to pass the $88 billion budget. It would be the first time since 2019 that that happened, when then-Speaker Larry Householder and Senate President Larry Obhoff took until July 17th to approve that year's budget, and the legislature actually had to pass a temporary budget to keep the state running until the, the real budget was passed. So the sticking point some of the same sticking points remain. The House version is $88 billion. The Senate version is $3 billion less. And that's mostly because they removed funding for housing, feeding, and health care costs for Ohioans that are, are poor, and also hundreds of million dollars in child care funding. They're still stuck on the third grade reading guarantee. The House wants to eliminate that, but they are expected to vote today on a separate bill that would end that guarantee. Also, Senate Bill 83, that's Jerry Serino's higher education reforms to counter, quote, liberal influence at colleges and universities. Also, Senate Bill 1, stripping powers from the Board of Education. We're also hung up on tax cuts. The Senate plan is $3 billion, uh, but there's $541 million less for public schools in the Senate bill than in the House bill. And then we're still fighting over expanding the voucher programs. I I believe the Senate wants it to be the backpack bill where everybody gets it. Uh, Stevens did tell news reporters yesterday, he says, I hope you don't have too many plans in July. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I suspect that the Senate got ridiculous at the end. I mean, putting cramming Jerry Serena's ridiculous bill into that. I think they sense the House wasn't buying his bill because it's so draconian and stupid and it's going to hurt Ohio in a big way. So, so they tried to cram it into the budget bill. I don't see Stevens backing down on that. It, I think he may insist that come out of there. The, the voucher situation is an interesting one because... DeWine and the House were greatly expanding the vouchers, but the Senate, while taking all that money away from the proposal to feed the hungry and provide homes for the homeless, is trying to put a billion dollars into vouchers pretty much for all, which Mike DeWine has said he's against because it has a long-term budget impact. Mm-hmm. I mean, once you put that in there, is that in there for life or, or when things get tight, what do you do? So it's a good battle. I'm glad to, I was really glad to see Stevens throw down and say mm-hmm. no, because somebody has to rein in Matt Huffman. The guy is completely out of control. So we'll have to pay attention to that. It's all done secretly. And the thing is, what also happens in the reconciliation, all sorts of other sleazy stuff gets put in that mm-hmm. nobody talks about. And you don't find out until they release the thousand plus page document of the reconciliation. So it takes reporters days and days and possibly weeks to find all of the things that were snuck through in there. And that's apart from what we just talked about. Right. And what was it that got snuck into the chicken bill? I don't even, something major got snuck into the chicken bill. That was the state parks drilling. Right. So yeah, you have to watch for, you know, these little end runs at the last minute. And Courtney, wasn't the the, uh, thing that made Metro Health 
uh, eligible to work outside of Cuyahoga County. Wasn't that snuck into the budget bill or was that just a year end bill? You wrote that story a few years ago. There was no debate in Columbus about it. Oh, it was just man. all of a sudden Metro Health could operate anywhere it wanted to. You're making me reach back. It was tucked in somewhere. It wasn't obvious. I don't remember if it was the budget bill. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How is the petition drive going to put legalized abortion on the November ballot in Ohio? Laura, we got an update from the Democratic Party. We did. And so it's going well from the Democratic Party. We don't know everybody else exactly how well they're doing, but there seems like there are reasons to be optimistic. The Democratic Party has collected more than 100,000 signatures, all from volunteers working and to collect them, standing out and asking people to sign And they're just one of the groups. There's Ohio Physicians for Reproductive Rights and Protect Choice Ohio. That has the ACLU, Pro-Choice Ohio, Planned Parenthood, and other groups. Those groups did not share the number of signatures they've gathered. But their goal is to get like 720,000, which is almost double what they need to get this on the ballot. And the reason is that the ballot board gets to go through and find out how many aren't valid and then throw those ones out. So you do still have a cure period. You get 10 days if you don't have enough to, to come up with enough, but I don't think anyone wants to rely on that. So the democratic party says they do have something from at least every, at least one from all of Ohio's 88 counties. And they were impressed by how many people wanted to sign in some heavily rural or Republican areas. The, we had a late story published where Cuyahoga County is looking for a boatload of volunteers yeah. to verify signatures. It doesn't say it's for this one, but what else could it be? It's going to take a lot of people going through that. And you have to suspect that anti-abortion folks are going to sign up to do that so that they can be a monkey wrench in the process. It does you can seem have some ugly things going on. Uh-huh. I'm yeah. sorry. I said it does seem problematic that you have volunteers deciding if signatures are valid. Obviously, I would think there's a check and balance in that system uh, because yeah, it's, they're called security guards. <laughs> <laughs> this is a really big deal, right? I mean, this is the entire linchpin of the August 8th election. And that literature is, is regardless of what they said their campaign playbook was going to be. It, abortion is playing a role in that. So they they did hire um the pro-abortion rights people did hire an internal group to go through and determine how many signatures are valid so they can pre-check them so they're not just like going in blind and handing them over to elections officials. So that's pretty common. And the deadline is July 5th. So they wanted everything in by June 19th so they had a better handle on where they stood before they turned these in for you know to the ballot board. We do still have the cure period. Issue yeah. one would wipe that out. But if they don't have enough, they get 10 more days. Uh, it's it's fascinating how the Republicans are trying to change the rules in midstream with the terrible issue one. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How often does a reporter get to use the word glob in a story, especially a story about food? What do guards at the Cuyahoga County Jail say the consequences might be if the jail doesn't stop serving inmates what looks like indescribable globs of mush? Courtney. Oh, yeah. So corrections corporals at the Cuyahoga County Jail, they're demanding action from management on just what they say is this really gross food. They fear that if meal service isn't improved for inmates, it could it could lead folks to, you know, lashing out, potentially even a riot. So the guards are just concerned that 
poor food day in and day out are, are raising tensions by inmates who are stuck in there and, and must deal with it. And and this seemed to kick off on a particularly bad food day at the jail at the end of May. That meal involved a, a beef and potatoes and gravy kind of mixture. It looked like that wet cat food to me in that picture we shared online. And yeah, gross. Yeah. One, one corporal sent a note to the jail director about that meal and said he was scared for his life and he was scared for his co-workers' lives who were asked to hand out these meals to inmates. And then that kind of started a chain of comments from other corporals in the jail. They joined in and one one flagged breakfast that morning, which was included this glob, I suppose, of jelly and a dinner roll, some milk and cereal. He said the food's like basically hitting a new low and, and the, the service provider, the food service provider, Trinity Services Group, is failing the inmates and the officers, the corporals wrote. And yet another person said that it's often left to staff, they're left to prepare and serve food with no training, which isn't how this is supposed to work either. And it just, it's raising the alarm bells for what it could do to the, the tensions and, and vibe in the jail. I would have thought after we published Caitlin Durbin's story on this weeks ago with a huge picture of one of the meals that County Executive Chris Renane and the Cuyahoga County Council would have said, holy moly, yikes, this is a crisis, let's fix it. Even temporarily bringing in Burger King or something. But you haven't really gotten that sense. I mean, it does look like, uh, based on comments in the story published yesterday, that council is insisting on some nutritional standards. But where is the crisis response? This is all hands. Let's fix this. And you don't feel like you're seeing that. You have barely seen any comments from Chris Ronane. Yeah, it, it, you know, this is a very interesting time for this issue to be raised. Their contract, Trinity Services Group's contract with the county, expired on Wednesday. So this is an opportunity for the county to seek another food provider, right? And and I don't know, I didn't get a sense from the story that that's necessarily happening. They it sounds like they expect Trinity Services to at least provide meals in the interim. But I really think it's worth noting here, when they signed this contract with Trinity Services three years ago, these issues were raised on the front end. Council held up that process initially, knowing that there had been concerns in other jails that Trinity Services had served. And even there was an allegation of a, of a riot caused by the food Trinity disputes that, but this is this has been out there. Council knew this going into the contract. The problem back then was the county said they they really couldn't get many bidders on the food, so you're just left with these companies that provide meals like this. Well, if that's Can the case, then they should Trinity's, start doing their own food service. Should we point out that Trinity's contract is also for the commissary, and so they make money on people buying Doritos when they can't eat the, the disgusting meals that they serve? Yeah, that right. They're making money on it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is a symptom of long COVID that we had not heard about before Gretchen Crowen reported it this week? And what are some other results of a study in which university hospitals is a key player? Lisa. 
Yeah, apparently frequent thirst might be a symptom of long COVID. This comes from a national study of 10,000 long COVID patients that was published in uh, last month's Journal of the American Medical Association. They found the usual suspect symptoms like loss of taste and smell, brain fog and fatigue, but they found some surprising new ones like loss of libido and constant thirst. Dr. Grace McComsey, the director of the Cleveland Clinic's version of the RECOVER trial, says the unusual symptoms were dismissed at first, but many patients kept saying they always felt thirsty. So this study is an effort to generate a clinical scoring method to identify long COVID patients. They used an expanded list of 37 symptoms. Usually the, the standard list is 10, so they've expanded it three times. The This would be a basis for future studies to determine the chemical markers for long COVID, which has a fancy name. I didn't know that. It's also known as post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 or PASC. And so they really want to try and catch us in the early stages. So they want to assess the risk for COVID-19. Interesting, you know, because frequent thirst is also a sign of diabetes. So, you know, they kind of said, well, you know, maybe they're pre-diabetic or whatever. But uh, interesting fact in this story, they say that, you know, COVID-19, you can get it more than once. And I think some of us know people who have had that, but each additional infection raises your risk of serious symptoms that can last six months or more. Yeah, that was frightening. And they said that there is evidence, even though the vaccines wear off quickly, that the vaccine does help you not get long COVID. What is not clear is whether the folks that are reporting the thirstiness are dehydrated or if it's just some trick of their brain that's telling them they're thirsty, even though they're not. It, that, that, that one threw me. Just being constantly thirsty was, um, it's just, troubling. It's a scary thing. Uh, The other thing I learned in that story is the control group they have includes people who had never had COVID before, but they have gotten it, some of them, since the study began. And so that's giving them interesting data uh, from before and after people get COVID. Yeah, boy, it's it's still an enigma. It's still an enigma, and I keep getting the vaccines because the last thing I want to do is get long COVID. Good story by Gretchen. Check it out. That study is going to continue to pay dividends. We'll keep reporting on it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio has been pretty unfriendly to solar power, as we have talked about previously. So any move to support it is actually a big step. What is the proposal to develop smaller installations than we are used to seeing, Courtney? Yeah, the legislation that's already been introduced in the General Assembly would allow for construction of, like you said, small solar power light installations all across the state. And the effect is it would give residents a whole bunch more access to discounted renewable energy, especially folks whose roofs aren't primed for their own solar installations or they have access to their own panels, this lets them tap into energy that was locally produced via solar power. So this bill that's moving, it seems through, it it calls for a pilot project to allow for development of, they're called community solar arrays. And, And Ohioans, like I said, they can currently get locally produced solar power if they have their own personal setups but this lets the owners of arrays then sell that power to other people within the service area of the local utility. So you can tap into your neighbor's generated power here, basically. And, and, and the law would give renters more access to solar. 
and and it just kind of expands things. What I found interesting about this is that the bill has two Republican sponsors. Um, they didn't talk to us, but we talked to the Democratic co-sponsor on the bill, Bride Rose Sweeney, who represents the Western suburbs. And she kind of gave us an insight on maybe why this has traction in the Republican state house. She, she described this measure as a free market competitive way of trying to diversify our energy pro- portfolio. So is this the kind of thing where a community could put it on a school or something like that? Is that what we're talking about, putting it into common public areas? I, I'm not sure what the distinctions would be there, but that sure sounds like projects that have moved forward and have been called community solar power. I also think it allows just private owners to then whatever excess energy they generate can then be distributed through the grid to other people who want to it. their to their neighbors. Okay, yeah. I see. And this this You're... is a a a pretty big pilot project, it sure seems. These 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 setups are are limited generally to 10 megawatts in size and up to 20 megawatts in Appalachia per project. But you look at those numbers and one megapot megawatt will generate about 650 homes. So that's that adds up pretty quick. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I mentioned at the top of the podcast, it's the solstice, the first day of summer when you want to be outside. What is the downtown Cleveland busker program and how will it enliven the city with music this summer, Lisa? Yeah, this is pretty interesting. They're trying to organize buskers, which, you know, because buskers usually just show up wherever and, and do what they will. But the downtown Cleveland Incorporated, this is their second year of the downtown busker program. So what they've done, they've created a map of 20 what they call pitch locations where buskers can perform and this would maximize their visibility in in heavy pedestrian areas the buskers can choose a site with an application or they can just show up at a pitch you know location and perform so the buskers guide also helps performers with things like best practices how to keep your equipment and your tips safe while you're performing so how to sell merchandise and how to comply with city ordinances so the sites are clustered in 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 downtown areas there are several in playhouse square a lot of them along Euclid and Prospect and in the Gateway and Warehouse Districts. And if you want details, you can go down to the site downtowncleveland.com slash busker. So some of this is aimed at people going downtown for Guardians games, I presume, if it's in the Gateway District. Right, right. There are several clustered right around Progressive Field, and there's some, you know, along Playhouse Square. And so, yeah, um, I think it'll be interesting because usually, like I said, buskers are organic. We had a saxophone guy, you know, in Houston that showed up at every home game, and, you know, it was nothing formal. But so it's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's part of the vibe of a city. And in the warm weather... Uh, it's great. And, and it's good that Cleveland is providing some backup for it instead of making it difficult. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What are some of the thoughts offered Tuesday, Laura, for using the abandoned subway under the Veterans Memorial Bridge? Have we lost Laura? I can't hear her. I can't hear her. <laughs> what a nightmare. All right. We'll move on, Courtney. Clada Irish pubs were much trumpeted when they opened in places like Legacy Village back in the day. They're gone now, and the people who ran them are in trouble with the government. How come? Yeah, the Department of Labor last week sued the former owner of Irish pub chain Clada Irish Pub 
along with its current owner, Pat McDonough. He's a multimillionaire who owns Ireland's largest fast food chain. It's called Supermax. And and the Department of Labor accused this Clada development group based in Solon of failing to properly run its retirement plan for employees after the company fell into bankruptcy some time ago. So the lawsuit's asking a judge to remove McDonough, the owner of, of of this, as long along with his partner, one-time partner, Kevin Blair, who's a Cleveland native. They want those two men removed from their positions as fiduciaries of the retirement account and to get new people in overseeing the plan because they're accused of violating the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, which is supposed to, you know, help folks after they end their employment. There's still 65 folks under this company's plan. And the company has just $100,000 in assets post-bankruptcy. So there's not a lot of money there to fulfill the plan. Yeah, I, uh, this was such a big deal when they opened. I mean, when Legacy Village opened and the other ones. And to come 20 years later to see this kind of sordid history uh, it's it's sad for all the people that like to go there. And it's this is a big business operation in Ireland, right? Yeah, the, the one guy involved, he owns the largest fast food chain over there. So I'm sure folks in Ireland found this news to be interesting. But it is worth noting that this Clada development group, it's been going through a long string of court cases of issues around its business. It's not just this retirement issue. There was that bankruptcy filing. There was a dispute over what was framed as like an investment or a loan in the business. The CFO was charged last year with wire fraud. And so this is all wrapped up in a, in a string of issues. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. You might have noticed Laura was having some technical issues in the beginning. She was out of sync with the rest of us. Those technical issues got compounded to the point where her computer completely shut down. So we're missing Laura for much of this podcast, which explains why it's shorter. Go enjoy the first day of summer. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Hope you get your computer fixed. Thank you for listening to this podcast. <laughs>